Happy Hanukkah! This year, Judaism Unbound is partnering with our friends, the Torah Studio, in an initiative called Apocryphist, Hanukkah Unbound and Uncanonized. We believe that Hanukkah can be a time of year where we connect to many books that were not officially included in the Hebrew Bible, but which nonetheless can be meaningful for Jewish individuals, communities, and the world. Through four bonus episodes, we will be exploring some of these books in detail and asking big questions about what canon even means. Liana Wertman, founder of the Torah Studio, which is an accessible and inclusive learning space that encourages people to take ownership of our traditional Jewish texts and to pass partner with us on live streaming events exploring books from Esther to Lamentations to Ecclesiastes to Ruth, joins us for all four of these bonus conversations. Learn more and sign up for our Apocryphist email list, which will be sent out throughout Hanukkah, by visiting judaismunbound.com apocrypha. That's A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A. This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, Apocrypha Now. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lex Rofberg. And I'm Liana Wertman. And it's bittersweet, but it's mostly sweet because we are concluding Apocryphist this year. We are releasing our final bonus episode. And uh, the sweet is that we have this last piece to beam out to all of you in your pod catchers, your podcast catching devices. But it's sad because this means that we won't have any new Apocryphist bonus episodes for quite some time. And that's a bummer. But what we've learned over the course of our conversation together is that we have the power always to expand, to upend what canon is. So if it appears that the canon of Apocryphist is frozen after this episode, you will know that there's always the chance to add and grow it in the future. So that's what's going to be happening when we revive this next year. But we do have one final conversation for this year, and it's going to be a great one. And this one is not anchored on one particular book from the realm of Apocrypha that we want to talk about. It's a little bit broader than that. But we did want to start by talking about a book in Jewish history. And that book is not thousands of years old. It's hundreds of years old. It's the Tanya, which some of you may have heard of and some of you might not have. Tanya is, of course, a common name of people, but it is referencing the Baal HaTanya. It is referencing the person who wrote a book called the Tanya, and it is a core, core central text for Chabad Hasidic Jews. It's a really important book to look at when we're talking about what Jewish canon means. There are people in the scholarly world who talk about canon and apocrypha and all this, and they're mostly looking a few thousand years ago. They're not looking at contemporary or even like modern, because this was a few hundred years ago, works of Jewish creation that are treated as a kind of canon without being biblical canon. And the Tanya is an example of that. So you can and you're encouraged to Google like, what's the Tanya? What, and you will find stuff on Chabad.org, I promise you. Because the reason why I'm saying it that way is in many ways, this text, it's not only that it is like on a level playing field, with the classic Jewish canon, it's that in some ways it's more important. It's it's become sort of a core framework of how folks in that universe organize their Judaism. And I'm not saying that to try to slander Chabad. I don't mean that disrespectfully. I think if I were talking to somebody who is themselves in Chabad, they would actually agree with me that the Tanya is a fundamental book to be placed much more like Torah on that level than sort of on the level of other books that are part of the canon that might come up a few times a year. Like this is something that many Chabad folks 
read as sort of a cycle in the same way that people read the Torah cycle, that it is crucial. And that's interesting that a few hundred years ago, somebody wrote a book and a set of their followers made that book canon, made it really, really central to their Jewish lives in a traditionalist framework. Not that like part of why we're doing this episode is to show that we're not only being like radicals trying to upend what Jewish authority means. There are people even in traditionalist frameworks who have fashioned new relationships to canonical books. And the Tanya is a good example of that. So I wanted to start there. And Liana, I just want to hear from you, like, how might we push ourselves to think about the question of canon of Apocrypha in ways that is not just anchored to books that were written like during the Second Temple a couple thousand years ago? I think when we think about canon, we're usually thinking about biblical canon, right? The things that we want to be done. We don't want to add or edit or grow. We just want to know that they are there. And if anything, the fact of their canonization means it's over and it's time to move on to the next thing. We have a biblical canon because the biblical time period has paused, has ended, and we are now living in a rabbinic era, a time where we're living different Jewish lives. And having something that's closed and done makes it much easier to relate to because it can't suddenly change for us. But what we've all struggled with throughout the last 2000 years is our core texts tend to be stories that even though I, as someone who spends a lot of time and effort understanding these texts in a modern lens, are not easy to access right off the bat. They're stories that are old. They feel distant from us. They use language that makes us uncomfortable, that keeps us out of being able to feel very vulnerable and open-hearted. I just was teaching a class a few weeks ago about Psalm 23 and talking about the word enemies and the word Lord being blocks for us to understand fundamental human emotions. And what we see in some of the books that have been coming out over the last few hundred years are opportunities to look at Judaism actually in a modern light. And Tanya is an example of somebody taking traditional Jewish wisdom that had been passed down orally to them over hundreds and hundreds of years and writing down no longer a story that is supposed to be something far away, but a story that's supposed to specifically relate to someone from 200 years ago. We don't have a lot of texts that do that. The opportunity to see our values reflected in books that are much newer is an opportunity for us to actually feel seen as Jews the way that we currently are living. The fact that an organization, a community, a sect like Chabad, a sect of Judaism that most of us have some sort of relationship to because they are so present in people's lives, have a book that most of us would not think of or know of as a Jewish book that matters that much to them is evidence that we are allowed to make serious meaning out of new information and knowledge. But if anything, I think a lot of progressive Jews end up leaning more heavily on these ancient texts because we have not created new opportunities for ourselves to be engaging with these values and stories. So we'd rather go to this closed book than have nothing versus knowing that we're allowed to expand it gives us a different relationship to the initial texts. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful point. I remember reading this is going to sound weird. I promise it's going somewhere. I remember when I moved to Jackson, Mississippi, right out of college to work at the Institute of Southern Jewish Life, one of the first things I did, literally, I hadn't even taken all the stuff out of my bag, but I wanted to go to the library that was closest to me 
I, I felt like, okay, I'm becoming an adult and I want to be an adult that like has a relationship to my local library. So I went to the library and I checked out of the library, the Book of Mormon, and I read the whole thing. It is a like incredibly fascinating, readable book. And I totally understand why people are drawn into it and how it was the seed of a religious community. It's also abominable in so many ways. It is deeply racist. I bring it up because I think the reason it was so readable to me is that it's only a couple hundred years old. I'm used to reading Jewish texts that are a lot more than a hundred years old and where I have to constantly be doing a translational act. I have to constantly be mapping from ways of writing. And obviously they were written in other languages. So that's like a literal translational act. But even when it's in English and even when it's written in translations that are like meant to be sort of close-ish to how people today write, you can tell in your bones it's not. Like people don't write the way that Deuteronomy is written, even in Hebrew. Like it's it's just a different way of writing because of course it is. Like every era and every context is going to have it. So when you read the Book of Mormon, it, again, it's still a couple hundred years old. And by the way, I'm being a Mormon heretic. Like they think it's thousands of years old and that it was uncovered by Joseph Smith a few hundred years ago. But like when you read that, you're like, oh, wow, I feel like I'm reading, you know, a Nathaniel Hawthorne book, like some like American literature classic. It, it like still not quite how I would talk or write, but closer. I do think that that's a problem that we have Jewishly, that we don't have core texts that we see as like shaping us quite as much as those ancient ones. Now, I would immediately say like, yes, for many communities, there are rabbis writing things now. There are books now. Like, it's not that we don't have these at all, but we enshrine them with less sanctity than the Mormons enshrine the Book of Mormon. It matters that the Mormons then said that it's actually older than it is. That's like interesting, right? That they, they felt the need to anchor it on ancientness. Joe Smith could have said, I wrote a book. Here's a cool story that I think could be compelling to you religiously. He didn't do that. Chabad actually did. The Alter Rebbe who wrote the Tanya, he didn't pretend that this was thousands of years old. There's precedent for that. The Zohar, many hundreds of years old from now, but it's like less than a thousand years old. But it claimed to be written by Shimon Bar Yochai a thousand years before that. They still believed that people needed to feel like a thing was old in order to relate to it. It's a founding mystical text. It has, funny enough, had a huge influence on Chabad, but on all Hasidic Jews. But like what I admire about the Tanya, and there's things that are repulsive about that in the same way there's things that are repulsive about the Book of Mormon. The the Tanya, like that's exactly where you find this notion that non-Jews only have animal souls. It's still really readable. It would behoove us as a Jewish community if we saw that as a feature, not a bug. If we saw that as we should be looking in the 21st century for readable, amazing expressions of Jewishness that we want to canonize, that we want to see as deeply meaningful to us in the same way that the Book of Esther probably became popular because 2,400 years ago or whatever, it was an engaging story more than the fact that it's old. The thing we need to be asking ourselves, and I think that the Tanya exemplifies, is what do we need? Because sometimes we need stories that say that they're old, right? We need to, especially when it's a story that changes a fundamental aspect of our religious life, like the Book of Mormon did for Mormons. You don't want to think that some random person just wrote it. 
there needs to be something older, bigger, stronger than one person with all of that power. And the person who can know that they cannot own this text alone is the person who can set up a religion and not just a cult, right? Because it's not just about them. It's about this larger story that traces us back to something bigger. And the Tanya doesn't try to pretend to be old, not because it is admitting to making up a new story, but because it's meeting a different need, which is how do I live a good life as a Jewish person? How do I learn lessons from this text that are modern, that are new? And most of the books that I see come out, not in any negative way whatsoever, tend to be reviews of what is historically happening or changing in the Jewish community or books of modern Midrash, which are gorgeous. But both of those don't fill a need that I have. The need that I have is not I need new versions of Torah personally, because I know that I can come up with new stuff. They did 2000 years ago. We're always trying to fill those gaps in, but it's hard for me to be like, oh, it's as authoritative for me to have written a story now as it would have been 2000 years ago. When I say that, I mean, it's not that authoritative, right? It's just as authoritative as the rabbis in that it is not, in that it is a beautiful representation of what I think about those texts. And when it comes to stories about what we're doing as Jews in the 21st century, that's just too new. It's too observational. So I'm wondering genuinely right now, what new types of knowledge and stories do we need in the 21st century as Jews that don't simply expand a canon or adjust a story, but actually give us new, important spiritual knowledge that the 21st century needs. I think that that should be a defining question of our generation or even beyond. I don't mean like millennials, love to millennials, but like, I mean that of our like century, um, maybe even beyond, like I try to think about, and maybe this is arrogant. I don't know. Like, like I don't mean it for me personally, but I try to think about like, if there's a Jewish people in a thousand years, which there may not be, Climate change may end all human inhabitation of this planet. If there is, I don't think that anything that the 21st century, I think that every single thing that everybody I know does Jewishly will end up being distilled to like one or two sentences in history books or not even just books, like oral teachings, like how people talk about the past. I think that it's possible if we committed to the project of what is the canon or what are because uh, we we don't know that we want a canon but what are the set of stories that are not just texts but are films podcasts forms of media that didn't exist until the last 100 and change years on the film front or the last 10 and change years on the podcast front like i believe that there will be forms of those media that become canonical i don't want it to be random i want it to be that we actually as a collective thought about this. And we're like, these are the ones that represent what we want to contribute to that future, that in a thousand years, they'll have some of the stuff that we liked, some of the stories that we were into. Do I think Broad City is part of that? I might, actually. Do I think that the Diary of Anne Frank is part of that? I think if I were to not make active choices, I don't mean me, if we as a collective were not going to make active choices about what we want in that canon, I think Diary of Anne Frank is a very likely winner. 
I think Fiddler on the Roof is a very likely winner. Those are two things that I don't think are bad things. Are they what I believe our collective would choose of everything to make our like most celebrated, cherished stories? I don't think so. I'm not positive. But at the very least, I'd like us to have that conversation so that when we do have forms of like canonizing that happen, it's because we've sculpted them together and not just like, uh, I guess these got the most clicks. And so people remembered them. One of the things that I'm thinking about as you say this is that when we talk about canon, we're only ever looking backwards, right? I could come up with a canon of the last thousand years of Judaism. And I don't know what that would look like exactly because I haven't done it, but I can do that because I can exactly like you're saying, they might not have picked those books as what lasted, but we now have evidence of what has continued to matter, not just to the people who it came out for, but to the people who followed those people. History is going to make the decisions about what 21st century canon looks like, but our job has to be not simply to decide what the canon is now, but to create new ways to relate to Jewish knowledge, to relate to Jewish stories, to tell Jewish stories that will be compelling at the very least for the people right now. And that's the only people we should be interested in in making it for. And some of those things will go way beyond what is just important to us right now. I mean, to me, Russian Doll is an experience, especially the second season, is an experience of Judaism that is so important to me. But that's not going to be an experience that my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren might really relate to because we're living in a time that's changing. And our relationship to diaspora, to movement, to the way that the 20th century affected Jews is going to be very different than someone three, 400 years from now. Because of course, we still talk about the Spanish Inquisition, and we know that that massively changed it. But I don't feel in that same way the Spanish Inquisition as I do the atrocities that happened to Jews in the 20th century, because those were my grandparents, right? I know those people. I have faces and names. So books like The Diary of Anne Frank, I think, is a really apt imagination of what will be there. But I'm really excited to see what Jewish knowledge is important to us to create about in our day. Maybe from Olam Haba, I'll get to find out from the world to come, I will get to find out what makes it from my lifetime or my general time period into Jewish canon. I'm going to put aside that I am ready to invest time and effort into making sure that Russian Doll speaks to Jews 500 years from now. To people listening to this podcast in the year 3000, and I'm not doing a Jonas Brothers thing, Hopefully, there's some of you out there that have this at an archaeological site somewhere. Um, I would like you to find Natasha Leone, any of her work, and I would like you to canonize her in your time. And I believe that Russian Doll in particular, which is a story that incorporates forms of Jewish time travel that I actually think are, are not just of our time, but are demonstrations of forms of cross-generational interaction that are, that are longstanding in Jewish life. Anyway, you're right, though. Like, that might not be the one. I'm lobbying, but there will be other people lobbying for other things, and I have no idea who will win. Um, we're closing Apocryphest, and my hope is that it's not a closing, because the whole point is we're not into canons that close and, you know, boundaries that close, but that all of you out there will feel charged and called to participate in this question. It's not about 
oh my gosh, it's so terrible that we don't have a relationship as a Jewish society to the book of Tobit. I do think that's true. But the reason we have this initiative is not like, oh, there are cool books you don't know about. It's okay if you don't go and read those books. It like bums me out a little bit. But mostly the fact that those books are there and spoke to our ancestors in the grand sense of ancestors, not just the genealogical sense, but to those who held the Jewish tradition and passed it to us, whether you converted recently and don't have Jewish genealogical ancestors or not, that fact that those things are there points to a set of superpowers we have that we have not been using. We have the superpower to change what Jewish canon is. It's not in the heavens far away from us. It is our superpower that we have right here wherever you are on earth. So it would be silly to go to a superhero movie and know that Superman could fly the whole time and notice that he never flies once. Like, why not? So let's use the superpower that we have, which is to notice when stories are timeless and meaningful and have something to teach across generations and actually say that those are going to have the level of sanctity that we grant Torah. Let's do that. That's the purpose of this event. That's why we have Apocryphist. To take the step that says Apocrypha, Torah, those are treated as deeply separate realms. We need to blur them. We need to have channels that allow us to find sanctity, not just in those texts we've already marked as sacred, but in the other ones too. So we're going to close on that note. There is an amazing, amazing opportunity that I'm going to pass to Liana to shout out that is happening as this episode is being released, and then we'll close for real. Thank you, Lex. The Taurus Studio is hosting our very first Hanukkah fundraiser, and we're wrapping it up from the 13th to the 15th of December, 2023. So if you're listening to that right now, it's the perfect time with an art auction. All of the art in the auction was donated by Taurus Studio learners and people who are regularly coming to our classes. So please take a look at some of the incredible creations, art, such a gorgeous wealth of art. And I'm so proud of the people who made it. So please check it out. Get yourself a Hanukkah gift while also giving us the gift of support. Amen. Absolutely. Seriously, though, we we really, really appreciate every form of involvement that you've had, whether that was just listening to these episodes, whether that was following along with the emails. We would really, really love if this was meaningful for you, if you headed to those donate links and send us even a small donation, whatever you're able to donate would mean the world to us. Judaismunbound.com slash donate for us and thetorahstudio.org slash donate for the Torah Studio. And it would allow us to keep on finding new forms of Torah in our world and finding ways to mark them as sacred for the Jewish future. So that's the note we're going to close on. Thank you so much for an apocryphal time, which of course means a great, joyous time. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.